Hello and welcome to A Flatpack History of Sweden, your podcast guide taking you on a long journey through Swedish history. I am Chris and next to me or opposite me as always is Orsa. Yes, hello and welcome to a new episode. An episode that I kind of applied dictatorial powers when it came to naming it. I insisted we call it the one where everybody dies as a sort of slightly morbid reference to my favorite TV show, Friends, where all the episodes have the title, the one where, or the one with, or the one when. Yeah, you definitely wanted this one, but I think it's really great because uh, it really sums up what we're going to be talking about. And uh, I think you're also amusing yourself with it. So that's great. I mean, I won't promise I'm not going to do it again. Well, we'll see. I guess uh, the title is definitely fitting to today's episode because we will be saying goodbye to several of the important figures who have featured very prominently in the last few episodes. But before we let the Grim Reaper in and welcome him into the podcast to see who among the prominent Scandinavian broads and political figures he's come to take away, it's probably time to start with our Swedish phrase of the week. Yeah, this week's phrase is Det ska böjas i tid, det som krokigt ska bli. And this sounds a bit odd when you translate it to English as the words are a bit strange, but it means if you want to get it crooked, you have to start bending it early. Yeah, and it means that if you want to learn something, you need to start young. And especially it's applied in contexts where uh, if you want to follow in someone's footsteps or someone wants another person to follow in their footsteps, you need to start young. Let's use an example. So I do fencing. I don't know if that's come up before in the podcast, but I do. Say that one of my teammates brings their young child to the club, intending for him or her to follow in their parents' footsteps and also become a fencer. Then I could say to my teammate, well, det ska böjas i tid, det som krokigt ska bli, meaning that the child should start fencing young, start being bent on time, if they're ever to become a fencer, to be crooked like their parents. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. And it has a nice specific meaning. And when trying to think of a nice segue into the rest of the episode, I guess many of our kings and queens started to bend their kids early or they were forced to be bent early as they became monarch at age 10 or something like that. So they ended up crooked quite quickly. Well, some more crooked than others, to be honest. Yeah, in every sense of the word, I think. It's a great array of kings and queens and their rule and politics that we will spend this episode talking about as we pick up where we left off last time. Exactly, and we'll attempt to cover the years 1371 to 1387 in this episode, which is a period that I suppose brings a kind of closure to some of the things that we've been covering in the last couple of episodes. Yeah, and it's actually quite a lot of time, considering some of the recent episodes have only been focused on one or two years, but we'll uh, see why that happens as we go through. And when we looked at the timeline, when we were planning this whole bunch of episodes, it did feel like these 16 years saw the end, sometimes quite literally, to some rulers and events. But first, let's remind ourselves very briefly of where we're at. In the previous two episodes, we've seen how a significant group of Swedish noblemen had grown sick of King Magnus's long rule, and in their desire to find someone else who they could control and limit the power of the king, they turned to Mecklenburg. 
where Duke Albert has been playing the long game, gradually increasing his involvement in Scandinavian politics and backing whoever he thought would ensure more power for himself. Yes, Duke Albert is very much a man who has himself on the top of his list of priorities. He also shares a fear with many other German rulers and with the Hansa, and that fear is the fear of Scandinavian kingdoms uniting and becoming too strong together, and hence threatening the trade domination that the Hansa and these German areas had in the Baltic Sea. So, following wars and political scheming, the joint forces of Mecklenburg and the rebellious Swedish nobility finally got rid of King Magnus and elected Duke Albert's son, confusingly also called Albert, as King of Sweden in 1364. After a few battles, ex-King Magnus was imprisoned and his son, King of Norway, Håkon, retreated back to Norway. But he's also keeping control over substantial areas of Western Sweden and still calls himself and his father King of those areas of Western Sweden. Even though it's officially Albert who is on the Swedish throne, and whilst he tries at first to make his mark on the country, in particular by placing fellow Germans in important positions in the state and giving them land and castles, it is very much the council who rules Sweden in practice. The council is made up by noblemen and bishops, and as the years go on, they manage to make Albert more and more of a weak king, especially by forcing him to give several kungaforsäkrans, a sort of oath that restricts his powers. In this powerful council of noblemen, there was none more powerful than Boo Jonsson Grip, knight, nobleman and counsellor who came into our story back in episode 61. Historian Boo Eriksson writes about Boo Jonsson Grip in his book Swedish History 1350-1600 and says, Few individuals in Swedish history have been as powerful as private individuals without the power of a certain position as he was. He further writes that the political situation in Sweden in the latter half of the 1300s, in particular because of the weak monarchy, allowed for a private individual to gain as much power as Jonsson Grip did. It wouldn't have been possible in the early 1300s, and it won't be possible later on in the 1500s. Bouillons en Grippe rose to power during Magnus's reign, largely thanks to Magnus giving him important positions in the state management and making him part of the council. However, in the 1360s, he distanced himself from the king, as we saw in the previous episode. In 1363, he was part of the group of rebelling noblemen that went to Mecklenburg to negotiate with Albert and Albert. It was in the conflict-filled years that followed that he really rose to prominence as one of the country's richest and most influential people. He negotiated with King Valdemar of Denmark and King Håkon of Norway on behalf of Albert, and for some period he was commander of Stockholm Castle. Throughout the 1360s and 70s, we can follow his career in an upwards trajectory as he gets more and more prestigious positions. Lawman of Östergötland in 1366, Chief District Judge in Dalarna 1367 and in Harnakind in 1371, Drotz in 1375 was his new position, and of course that great title, Officialis Generalis, controlling the management of the royal court and controlling the royal bailiffs back in 1369, so he's got a long CV. Bouillon was also an incredibly wealthy man, and only became richer as time went on. 
King Albert thanked him for his various services by giving him land that the king had taken. But Jonsson Grip also forced less powerful landowners to swap land with him or sell to him at a low price in pure gangster style. He also allied himself with traders in Stockholm and made money by exporting goods from his land. So he's doing everything, really. And in fact, by the 1370s, he was so wealthy that King Albert took loans from him and gave him the whole of Viborg County and Finland as a loan guarantee. So he's got a huge extra chunk of land there, too. But Jonsson Grip also agreed to pay off the king's debts and got Nysherping, Kalmar and Stegerholm castle counties in return. His influence in Finland would only grow after the various peace agreements that came in and out of force and after Albert had been forced to give yet another oath of declaration in 1371. By now, Bujonsson Grip could do pretty much what he wanted. He took control of Tavastahus and Borholm counties, and in 1374 he took over Orbul County, meaning that he essentially controlled all of Finland now. He actually spent quite a lot of time there, and built the castles Rasaboy and Korsholm, and he looked after all the other counties that he got in these other counties. So he is the castle king, kind of, in a way. Thanks to his wealth and his power base in Finland, he could threaten and coerce the rest of the Swedish nobility into agreeing with him. By the mid-1370s, there was a nobleman loyal to Bujonsson Grip in pretty much every castle in Sweden. His power network spread like a spider web across the country. But he also maintained good relations with the noblemen who had sided with Magnus and Håkon, and who prominently lived in western Sweden and in the counties that were ruled from Norway. This was, of course, a cause of worry for Albert and the Mecklenburgs. And, uh, they could never be sure that Jonsson Grip wouldn't switch sides again and unite the Swedish nobility with Norway and the western counties. Or perhaps try and take it all for himself. He seemed to have lived according to the old saying, keep your friends close but your enemies even closer. So we have a situation now where King Magnus is gone from the Swedish throne, King Albert is officially wearing the crown, but Bujonsson Grip is pretty much in charge. The bits of power King Albert got to wield himself weren't necessarily all about him either, as the shadow of his powerful father still loomed large in the throne room. Now, in the last episode, we saw how Magnus headed off to live in Norway as he was released as a result of one of these peace treaties and continued to rule the areas that remained in his control from there. And he continued the father and son duo double team that had been going on for quite some time now. So what happens to him next? He dies. Ah, Yes, he dies, and thanks to notes in the Icelandic annals, which uh, was the area he was still controlling at this point, we know a fair bit about how he died. He'd borrowed the ship Maria Bollan from Bishop Jun of Hulas, and most likely used this ship to sail to the Norwegian town of Turnsberg, that was part of his personal domain, to celebrate Christmas. And on the 1st of December 1374, the ship sank in a storm in the Bulma Fjord. 
Magnus, along with 25 other men of the ship, drowned. So he didn't have a second survival of a shipwreck because, remember, he nearly drowned in Bergen as well yeah. like a few years before. When it comes to shipwrecks, it's uh, two strikes and you're out. Yeah, it sounds like it. And unfortunately, there's no grave we have of Magnus. Uh, so we don't know if his body was simply never found or retrieved from the water or if he was just buried somewhere that time has since forgotten. But yeah, this is really quite sad, really. Magnus is dead. He was 58 years old and he's sort of, we've really been a main character in the story for almost 58 years because he's been uh, in charge of Sweden for so long, even if a lot of that time was as a regency when he was a young kid. And he continued to have power over these western counties for even longer, even after he'd been dethroned. So he'd ruled Sweden for 45 years and he'd ruled Norway for 36 too. Both very long reigns, both by medieval and even modern standards. And that goes by the fact that he's second in the all-time list of uh, Swedish monarchs. Looking back, whilst he did initially expand Swedish territory with the purchase of the fertile land of Skåne, his rule was plagued by drama, misfortune, and chronically poor finances. He's always taking loans out because uh, he never has enough money. And it was plagued by actual plague. Uh, remember when the Black Death hit Sweden and Norway in the 1340s? King Magnus was king and his bright idea to deal with it was that people should go barefoot to mass. Yes, and whilst that wasn't necessarily the best idea, it didn't seem like he did any worse than any of the other rulers around the time. So it's just, uh, the Black Death was coming, everyone was going to get it. There was nothing he could do about it in reality. Nah. And he was also betrayed by his eldest son and by King Valdemar and slandered to no end by his former friend and uh, servant, St. Birgitta. But as many books on Swedish kings will add at the very end of their chapter on him or their paragraph about him, he did do good legal work and instigated several legal reforms, such as the King Magnus Law of the Land and the Magnus Law of the Towns. And they're still super influential at this point and will be for another couple of centuries. Personally, I, I really do think he did quite a good job, all things considered. And just surviving so long when many kings before him only lasted a few years show you that he at least had some sort of political savviness behind him and he managed to do some good things as well. And the, the, the country, whilst he was loaning lots of money, the country as a whole seemed to be doing pretty fine. And I think a lot of the opinion formed about him comes from the fact that St. Birgitta and her propaganda letters are just bashing him the whole time and that's where a lot of the information comes from. And so it's quite easy to think he's got this massive negativity behind him. But it's actually, a lot of it is just the result of one angry, annoying woman. Yeah, and that's what a lot of modern historians are saying as well, that uh, his kind of legacy was tainted by that. Now, can I tell the story about the rumour after his death? Yes, I love this rumour. Please tell everybody this amazing rumour. So we know that Magnus, like many Swedish kings before and after him, fought Novgorod and later Russia to keep and expand the territory in the east. It would be no exaggeration to say that Novgorod was his enemy, which is why it's so funny that this story arises in Russia a few decades after his death in the late 13, early 1400s. It's called Magnus, the Swedish King's Testament, and is written in Old East Slavic. It says that Magnus actually survived the shipwreck and went to Novgorod to live at the Saviour's Abbey, which is believed to be the Valamu Abbey by Lake Ladoga. 
Here, the story claims, he converted to Russian Orthodoxy, became a monk, and changed his name to Grigory. Sadly, though, after just three days, he died. Again. But not before he had time to write a letter to his son and his brother, which, of course, he didn't have one, writing that they should not repeat his folly and invade Novgorod. In fact, Magnus, now Grigori, writes that the wrath of God shall be upon any Swede who takes up arms against Russia. That's a really quite uh, crazy after-death story there (laughs) from the Novgorodians. This is especially weird coming from the man who once sought special permission from the Pope to legitimise going to Novgorod and slay any heathens who wouldn't convert to Catholicism. I mean, if it is true, it must be one of the most extraordinary changes of heart in history, but of course it definitely isn't true. Oh, but part of me just wanted to be. It'd be hilarious if after everything else that happened in his life all the drama then magnus just went and now for my final act i shall disappear to join my old enemies in russia and become a monk in a religion that i spent my rule fighting against yeah i mean sometimes reality is stranger than fiction but this is definitely a case of fiction being stranger than reality because sadly enough in reality magnus is dead But life goes on in Sweden and in Norway too. Contrary to what the terms of the peace treaty stated, no surprise, Håkon actually keeps hold of the territories in the west of Sweden that had been his dad's and were supposed to be given back to Albert. And so Håkon keeps calling himself King of Sweden in addition to his title King of Norway. He also acted as Swedish king and didn't just leave these territories alone because, for example, in 1377, he gave estates in the hundred of Arla close to Lördösa to one of his servants. And documents at this time don't differentiate between Håkon's Norwegian and Swedish councillors, for example. There's a letter from 1376 when the nine councillors signing the document are called councillors of the King of Norway and Sweden. So it's not like he has a prime minister for Sweden and a prime minister for Norway and a defence minister for each. They're all just the same people working for him doing the job in both of these two parts of his territory. And he's not giving up this territory lightly. Albert knew he probably couldn't take Håkon's territories by force, so had to put up with this. It also could be because by the late 1370s, Sweden is caught up in a new border conflict with Novgorod. We don't know too much about what went on, other than that in 1377, Novgorod attacked several Swedish holdings in Finland. Sweden would eventually gain the upper hand and things would return to status quo, but we could theorize that the situation in the East might be the reason that Sweden let the fact that Helkon kept the territories in the West and sometimes used the title king, well, they let that slide. Yeah, that just seemed plausible. And quick hello to Novgorod again. They're back very briefly, but that was nice. After not speaking about them for a few episodes, it's good to see they're still there in the background. Thanks for cooking up absolutely crazy stories about King Magnus. Oh yeah, maybe they were just coming to deliver the story that their ex-king was still alive and he was called Grigori. 
if we look back over the last couple of decades of Scandinavian politics, you could argue that King Magnus and Valdemar were two of the best frenemies in history. They were always on each other's side, fighting each other, on each other's side again. So do you think that's probably true? Yeah, I think you could say so. They've certainly been back and forth a lot. They fought each other, they became friends, had allegiances, made sure their kids married each other. So yeah, it's, it's been a good frenemy relationship. I think that's why it's pretty perfect from a storytelling point of view. It's quite fitting that not long after Magnus died, Valdemar followed him into the afterlife. And very unusual for a medieval king, Valdemar doesn't die of a shipwreck or in battle. He actually dies of natural causes at Gulra Castle in northern Zealand on the 24th of October 1375. And he's around 55 years old when he dies. And just like Magnus, he's reigned for a very long time, 35 years to be exact. He's often described, and absolutely quite rightly, as a pivotal figure of Danish history because he literally rebuilt the country after it had essentially ceased to exist, after decades of internal Danish family fighting, economic mismanagement, and political turmoil. Because if you remember, Denmark was essentially ruled by predominantly German counts and noblemen with very little or even no government of its own in the 1330s and 1340s up to when Valdemar took power in 1330. 1940 actually itself. He was a phenomenal character. I know we haven't focused on him and his rule per se, since we're a History of Sweden, not History of Denmark podcast, but it has been fascinating to just catch a slight glimpse of what's going on in Denmark and just how relentlessly Valdemar has worked to buy, fight and trade to get Denmark back to existing as a proper kingdom. And, of course, he didn't just stop at getting it back. He went beyond that, as we saw when he not just took back Skjorna, but also went on to invade Erland and Gotland. And now Valdemar's death caused a bit of a problem in Denmark, because, as we mentioned in the last episode, he has no male heir after his son Christopher died in 1363. After a few months of delay and deliberation, the Hof, which is like the medieval Danish parliament or council, decided to proclaim Valdemar's five-year-old grandson, Olof, king the next year in 1375. But this wasn't necessarily going to be the case, hence the delay and deliberation. Always the master politician and wanting to keep as many options on the table as possible, Valdemar had actually promised that the Hanseatic towns would have a say over who the new king of Denmark would be, but also promised Duke Albert that the crown would go to the common grandson that they shared, the son of his son Henrik and the now deceased Ingeboy, who was also named Albert and happened to be Valdemar's closest male so there was Albert, Albert and Albert, um, which is lovely. Uh, confusing. But luckily for little Olof, the Hansa accepted him. But of course, the Mecklenburgs opposed this new regime in Denmark. They wanted the third Albert to take this throne, but there wasn't too much they could do about it in reality. And so that means we have another toddler king. But Olof isn't any old five-year-old. He is Valdemar's grandson by his daughter Margarete, who, as we know, is married to Norway's king Håkon. In fact, you could say that little Olof, or Olaf, depending on if you use the Swedish or the Danish-Norwegian spelling, 
is the result of a perfect mix of royal Scandinavian gene pools. His dad is the king of Norway because his paternal grandmother, Ingeborg, was the daughter of a Norwegian king. His dad was also the son of a Swedish king, the recently deceased Magnus, who himself came from the long Bjelbu line of Swedish royals. On Olaf's maternal side, his mother, Margareta, is the daughter of the Danish king that is rightfully hailed as the one who restored Denmark, not just to former glory, but to existence in general. That's such a great pedigree that this little boy has. And if he was a horse and a horse race like the Royal Ascot or something like that, he'd probably be expected to win with this amazing pedigree. It doesn't get better than that. He is the sum total of Scandinavian royalty. In reality, of course, we have to wait a while to see what Olaf will make of himself as a ruler because for now he's a child and ascending to the throne is as much his mother's doing as anything else. Queen Margareta is a really powerful person with great political savviness, which we'll see more proof of later on in the years to come when we look at her story in more detail and as Olaf grows up. For now, she's the one that insists that the title True Heir of Sweden be included in Olaf's title when he's proclaimed King of Denmark. He's already hailed as king by the people in Skorna, including in those towns that the Hansa have been in possession of since the treaty in 1370, and so they're accepting his position too. And since Olaf won't come of age until he's 14, it's his mother Margareta that signs the coronation charter on his behalf. In this charter, Olaf, or rather Margareta, agrees to meet with the Danhof at least once a year and also to return some properties that Valdemar had confiscated and give them back to the Hansa. It's interesting to see that Hawkon doesn't seem to be playing that big a part in this process, at least on paper. He seems to be willing to let Margareta take charge of the Danish side of things whilst he's up in Norway, and she seems to be doing the right thing in staying on good terms with the Hansa and also with the Danish council. Always good to try and start off a reign on friendly footing with both your council and the Hansa, I suppose. Something else that's no doubt good for young King Olof, his mother, and the Danish-Norwegian alliance is that a major power player behind the Swedish throne disappears in 1379. Duke Albert, father of the Swedish King Albert, and the man who's scheming with the Swedish nobleman ousted Magnus from the throne and prevented the Scandinavian kingdoms from moving closer to one another, well, he dies on the 18th of February. Along with being a political schemer, Duke Albert was also a massively self-serving man. His interests in Sweden were also self-serving. Once his son was on the throne, Duke Albert could come into possessions of castles and estates, and he could raise tax from there and grow his wealth from the sale of the produce made there. He also exerted significant influence over his son, who in a way was a puppet king under two masters, the Swedish council with Bouillons and Grip, and then for the other things he might have his own say over, his father was there in the background controlling him. Finally, even though he came into our story through his involvement in Scandinavian politics, Duke Albert was first and foremost a German ruler, Duke of Mecklenburg and Holstein for almost half a century. The death of Albert means that there would be no further attempts of putting a Mecklenburg on the Danish throne. That ship had sailed, and King Albert was certainly not his father's son when it came to playing long-term political games. 
But yes, Albert died in February of 1379, and the 1370s is slowly drawing to a close. Magnus is gone, Valdemar is gone, Duke Albert is gone. What will the new decade have in store? More royal death, actually, and we really meant it when we said this was the one where everyone dies. What? No. Are we going four for four here? The Swedish king is dead, the Danish king is dead, is the Grim Reaper breathing down the neck of the Norwegian one too? He is indeed, and King Haakon VI of Norway, son of King Magnus, and ruler of Norway since 1343, dies in Oslo on the 11th of September 1380. We don't know from what, but just like with Valdemar, it seems to have been natural causes. But he's either just turned or is about to turn 40 years old, so it's a bit sad for him. And he dies on my birthday, 611 years before I was born. Oh yeah, so he does. He leaves behind a young wife, Queen Margarete is only about 27 years old, and an even younger son. Olaf is 10 years old when he inherits the throne from his dad. At this point, though, he's already been king of Denmark for five years when he now becomes king of Norway. Thanks to Olaf being this perfect amalgamation of all Scandinavian royal families, and no doubt thanks to his strong and determined mother, Denmark and Norway is now joined in a personal union. Minor or medium-sized spoiler... Uh, Apart from a few months of interregnum here and there, Denmark and Norway will now have the same monarch all the way up to 1815. That's a huge fact in a huge amount of time. That's, uh, yeah, 450-odd years where they're going to have the same monarch. So, yeah, they're really going to be buddies from now on. And with Olaf still having four years to go until he comes of age, it's his mother who officially represents him as the monarch in both councils. She is, of course, also ensuring that he's seen as king in those areas in western Sweden that his father had still ruled over. Margareta spent the years of her marriage calling herself Queen of Norway and Sweden, and so of course her son was now to be called King of Norway, Denmark and Sweden. And quick diversion here as we get to tell you about a hilarious spelling mistake or typo from back in the day. And it's something that Harold Gustafsson brings up when he's talking about Margareta and Hawkon's titles. In a papal letter of 1371, Hawkon and Margareta are called King and Queen of Sweden. And in another papal letter of 1375, she is named Queen of Scotland and Norway. Knowledge of the political geography of Northern Europe doesn't seem to have had high priority in Avignon. The first case, Norway is forgotten, and in the second, the scribe has happened to write Scotia, Scotland, instead of Suecia for Sweden. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's just they're not paying very much attention to their letter writing back down when they're working for the Pope. That's a hilarious typo that people clearly didn't recognise. Uh, it isn't just us who make the odd mistake. But I feel like we've spent a long time talking about things outside of Sweden now. Before we conclude the episode, should we just head back to see what's going on on home turf? Yeah, so we've already mentioned that there were a few skirmishes with Novgorod in the east, but other than that, the late 1370s and the early 1380s aren't the most eventful. Or rather, let's say they present a bit of a lull in an otherwise stormy period. King Albert continues to be weak and ruled by, rather than ruling over, a powerful council of noblemen, the most powerful of all being Bujonsson Grip. 
In fact, in 1383, Albert is forced to swear yet another oath, or Cunha Fosekan, that further weakens his position vis-à-vis the council. It is telling of the current power balance in Sweden that he does this at Gripsholm Castle, the mighty residence of Bujonsson Grip. Yeah, wow, he's not doing this in Stockholm, he's doing this at Bujonsson Grip's house, which is yeah. pretty intense. And Bujonsson Grip had begun building Gripsholm three years earlier to serve as his main home and symbol of his mighty power. And it still stands there, loud and proud, on the outskirts of the town of Marie Fred in the county of Sörmland and on the shores of Lake Melleren. And it's about an hour west of Stockholm. However, before Albert is forced to give this additional oath to the council, he does do a show of force in 1381 when he tries to take back control of Skåne, but he fails to gain any loyalty from the locals, and most importantly from Skåne noblemen and Hansa towns, who are much more in favour of being part of Denmark, as we saw with their show of loyalty for young King Olof already from the get-go when he was declared king. So instead, Albert has to settle for a peace treaty with them. Interestingly, this peace is signed directly between Albert and the nobility in Skåne, without any involvement from the Danish crown or council, perhaps indicating that a bit of autonomy for the area has continued after years of being a bit special when it came to political relationships between the county and the surrounding kingdoms. At first glance, things seem to be moving along quite smoothly in Sweden. There's this weak king who's also not making too much of a fuss of himself and a content nobility who get to do what they want to do in the areas that they control, build their wealth and live the good life on their estates. And obviously we're just looking at the top echelons of society. I'm sure the day-to-day people still have their trials and tribulations, but unfortunately none of these are recorded for us. But things are about to change in general. And the first step in that change happens in August of 1386, and the 20th of August to be precise, because that's when Bujonsson Grip dies. We've seen just what a wealthy and powerful figure he's been in the last few decades, so it's only natural when this huge figure leaves the scene, there's a massive power vacuum left once he's gone. And as a matter of fact, he's been so powerful that when he's buried at Vardstena Abbey, it's noted in the Abbey's annals that against him, not even the king, Master Albert, could assert himself in any way, even though he occasionally tried. <laughs> That's quite a great line there. He must be one of the first famous burials at Vardstena Abbey too, because it only opened two years before. And this was, of course, St. Birgitta's pet project, so it's nice to see that it's finally being put to good use, and all of her angry letters and such went to at least some uh, success. Indeed, Bouillon's en Grippe, despite having a nice resting place, was not a nice man. In fact, he seemed to have been rather mean. In his will, he admits to having acted unlawfully, taken and coerced people to give up land, and asked the executor of his will to make up for his transgressions. But only after his death, maybe so that he doesn't have to suffer any personal loss because of this atonement. Ah, sneaky, sneaky. Yeah. A famous story of his menacing behaviour and relentless pursuit of wealth and power comes from when his first wife, Margareta Porse, was in labour with their first child. 
And uh, warning, this is a horrendously grim story. So if you aren't too happy when you listen to these awful stories, just, uh, just yeah, be wary that this is going to be grim. Yeah. As the labor went on, it became clear that Margareta wasn't going to survive. Now, if she died with no children, the inheritance law of the time stated that her family, not her husband, inherited her property. But if she and Jon Songrip had a child and she then died, the child would inherit the things for itself. And if the child then died before the father, the father inherited the child. I.e. Bu Jon Songrip would inherit the child's property, which was the mother's property originally. So as her situation deteriorates and it looks like both Margareta and the baby is going to die, Bouillon Sangrip orders a barber to cut open Margareta's stomach and take the baby out. Margareta dies and the child only lives for a very short time. But because it was technically alive when its mother died, the child inherited her wealth so that when it died just moments after, Bouillon Sangrip inherited everything. What a horrible and calculated act of terrible, well, murder, really. I mean, Margareta would have died anyway, but ordering a makeshift caesarean section from your barber just to make sure you get money shows you everything about Bouillon and Greet's character. He's, that's, yeah, I, I don't know, there are no other words. It's... Yeah, it's horrific. And apparently we're not the only ones who think it's awful. So did Margareta's family. They were naturally very upset. They launched a well-documented court case against Bouillon Sangrip. It's thanks to those documents being preserved that we know this story. But unfortunately, they lost the court case in 1361. I mean, yeah, that's not great. I mean, maybe. I guess Bouillon Sangrip did this to begin with because he knew the law was probably on his mm. side and there's no sentiment in Swedish medieval law. So they were just, yeah, you're a, you're a massive, like, bleep. <laughs> it's just, I think it's the calculatedness of yeah. it that is makes the story so horrendous. You know, your, your wife is about to die in childbirth, your child might die, and you're sitting there thinking of the inheritance process and how you're going to make sure you get her wealth. Yeah, it's uh, not, not kind at all. And so now this powerful and incredibly unlikable figure is gone, there's probably a lot of celebration. But there's also now conflict brewing amongst the Swedish nobility. And this is all about who should take over Bouillonson Grieb's land and power. And it's also about how the country should be ruled now in the future going forward. After all, the nobility don't want to see Albert getting any ideas and more power for himself. They want to keep having their own control over the country. It's been great for them to be left alone and not lorded over by a strong king. Bouillons and Grieb had left his holdings, as well as the castles he was technically looking after for the crown, to a group of ten noblemen, with eight deputies too. And these were to act as the executors of his will and administer his lands. They also had to pay off his debts, which were mainly to the church. This meant that for the moment, the nobility was still in charge of the country, but now there was a bit of drama about who would ultimately receive what, and who might receive the best parts of Bouillon and Grip's estate. 
The most upset, of course, was King Albert, who opposed this. He wanted those formerly crown lands back and the castles back, and so he tried to challenge the will and threatened to take these castles by force. Once again, the domestic situation in Sweden is falling apart because of the death of a strongman figure who's been controlling everything for himself. In this power struggle among the nobility and between the nobility and the crown, one group decides to look around for potential alliances. And who do they find when they look west and southwest? Well, it's the newly united Denmark and Norway, which is more or less under de facto rule of Queen Margareta during the Regency. We know that Margareta has always wanted to see her son come into possession of the entire domain that the Swedish crown was supposed to rule over and not just the West. After all, they put true heir of Sweden in Olaf's proclamation as king of Denmark 11 years previously, and he comes from a long line of Swedish kings on his father's side. So Margareta is happy to accept the plea of help and allegiance from that particular faction of the Swedish nobility who want her help, no doubt hoping that maybe before long all of Sweden will be added to her family's rule. But before things really get going and anything happens, Olof dies. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's the fourth death of a king in uh, as many minutes, really, almost. <laughs> well, at least in this episode, King Olof II of Denmark and the fourth of Norway is only 16 years old when he dies on the 3rd of August, 1387. And he dies at Falsterbu Castle in Skåne. While he became king at 5 and 10, respectively, he's only been in real power for about a year, having been declared of age and fit to rule at 15. But Margaret is such a big figure behind the throne that we didn't even mention this when this happened a year before, because it sort of made no difference yeah. that he was now technically the king in his own name. Yeah, and I mean, he really has no time to get going as a ruler in any shape or form before he dies. We've seen how his mother acted on his behalf when he was a child and how she seemed to have had these great plans for him and his role in Scandinavian politics, but yeah, nothing has had the chance to materialize yet. And there is no one to take his place. No younger brother. In fact, Margareta and Håkon had no other children. So what's going to happen to the throne of Denmark? and of Norway. And what about the fluctuating political situation in Sweden, with Björnson Grip gone, nobles in unrest, and King Albert still on the throne? And so in the true spirit of cliffhangers, that's all for today's episode, because that's where we're going to leave it. Yeah, lots of excitement still to come as we enter into a bit of a new era after having said goodbye to many of the most influential characters of the early and middle of the 1300s in Scandinavia. After all, we've spent 12 episodes covering the reign of Magnus alone. We've been with these characters for a long time. Yeah, it's hours and hours, probably about 10 hours we spent looking at Magnus's reign, and he's now gone, so we're going to have to see what happens when all these important people leave the scene. Yeah, but before we move forward, we're going to look back and take Mark up on his suggestion to do an episode, or maybe two, where we look back on what we've covered so far in Swedish history. 
So that'll be the next episode or maybe two episodes. And then we'll pick up with Margarete and Albert and the rest of the gang after that. For now, all that remains is to say thank you for listening. Don't forget to leave a review if you like us. It helps more people become aware of us. And check us out on social media. We're at Flatpack Sweden on Twitter and just search A Flatpack History of Sweden on Facebook. You can also send us an email on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com and check out our website at flatpackhistoryofsweden.com. So until next time, it's just uh, take care and be careful if you get on any boats to Norway. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye. Hey, door. Wait, wait, before you go, we have one more thing to tell you. Yes, in a previous episode we played the trailer for A History of Sakatvelo, Georgia and uh, the same people behind that podcast have just launched a new podcast along the Rex Factor style Rexypod format, this time rating all of the rulers of Russia from Rurik to Putin. So uh, let's hear from them and yes, like we said, see you next time. Bye bye. And welcome to the podcast you are currently listening to. I promise, this isn't a Russian invasion, just a temporary occupation. I'm Roberto, one of the hosts of the podcast, Czar Power. And I'm Brendan, the other half of the podcast. Together, we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. They will compete based on how well they fought, how successful they were in life, how much kompromat, or blackmail, they had on them, how handsome they were, and how long they ruled for. After being scored, we decide whether they get to party it out in the Kremlin or get sent straight to the Gulag. Those who make it to the Kremlin will need to duke it out for the position of best Russian ruler. You can find us on any podcast host as Czar Power, on Twitter at Czar Power Pod, and on Facebook as Czar Power. That's Czar spelled T-S-A-R. Now, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. And if you hear a knock on your door, beware. The KGB is coming to make your stay a bit more permanent.